you know, we need new materials. We can't solve the problem with what we've always used. You can't lose the functionality. None of us are going to move away from products that aren't convenient or aren't safe or don't arrive on our doorstep the way we want them. So we've got to start there. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Good Garbage Podcast. My name is Veth Krishna. My primary reason for existence has been to find ways to leave our wonderful planet cleaner. We will be speaking with material innovators, creators and propagators to learn from them how we can build for scale and towards a regenerative future. Their stories will help us answer the big question, what is good garbage? Hello, hello. Today I get to speak to Mark Lapping, the CEO of Aquapack. Uh, Mark has had such an interesting journey. Uh, we get to speak about my time and experiences in Scotland that were so formative for me. Uh, he grew up in Scotland and also served for a year or a little over in Africa, which really guided his journey. Uh, Mark has worked with a variety of global packaging companies before taking the entrepreneurial plunge uh, to build Aquapack. Aquapack uh, is building and creating great barriers for flexible packaging from biopolymers. And I saw the products myself in action uh, when we were in Rethinking Materials in London. This is a fun and wide-ranging conversation, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and I hope you will too. Hello, hello. I'm joined today by Mark Lapping, the CEO of Aquapack, which is a, a UK-based company which works on numerous magical products and uh, uh, Mark, of course, uh, you may know that I happened to meet Julian and John, uh, who were next to our stall at Rethink Materials, mm -hmm. and I was so excited to see all the products that you guys were uh, bringing out. So thank you so much for joining the show. My pleasure to be here, Ven. Very good to meet you, and good to be on the show. Thank you. Uh, so let's start uh, in the beginning, because we did a bit of snooping, but we couldn't find so much about your growing up years. And, you know, we know that you grew up in England, probably. Uh, but tell us about uh, the impacts that your growing up had, so that, you know, that impacted your life today and uh, the choice of uh, the, in the, the contribution that you're making today. A uh, great start to any interview, yeah. Adding a bit of context. So, no, my, actually, uh, England, a wrong assumption, much better than that. Scotland is where I was born and grew up. Uh, although I've lost the accent, I have lived uh, most of my life down in England. But, yeah, my dad... That's, that's not okay, though. You have to bring back the Scottish accent. <laughs> Don't worry. Come on. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, sure I, I could if I wanted to. But, uh, yeah, I go back there to watch sport. I, I, I support them in every sport. That's guaranteed. So, yeah, watching England's uh, always a tough one. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, my, uh, that, that was my upbringing up there. And um, in the UK, let's call it that. Um, and my, my father was a school teacher, so I moved around quite a bit. But I guess um, what was formative in my background that sort of brought me here was... Uh, a sort of fundamental awareness of the of the of the environment we live in, um, be that both the built environment and 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 the natural environment, and just I was lucky, you know, I was pushed into the countryside at a young age, taken on some great holidays, uh, had some great travelling experiences, and saw a great diversity of uh, of places and also the ecosystem uh, and how it sort of interacts, albeit at a pretty uh, basic level. And um, that and then my subsequent sort of studies 
always interested in in the sort of planet and uh, the geography of our planet and how all that pieced together uh, has led me to where I am now in terms of uh, trying to do something impactful and positive uh, for the planet in terms of how and what we use in our everyday lives. Um, and it really did sort of come from those fundamental beginnings. Superb. So I have actually three stories for you from, for you from Scotland, my experiences in Scotland. Mm -hmm. So when I was 16, and these some of them may resonate with you, and that's why I'm bringing it up. Uh, when I was 16, uh, there was a consultant who was my father's consultant, and he challenged me to go to something called Ridgeway Adventure Academy, north of Inverness, in a small little island called Ardmore. Mm -hmm. So I spent two excruciating weeks literally trying to live off the land and it was but it wow. was amazing my I think a lot of my work today is impacted by that because one of the things they taught me very clearly was leave people and the planet better than you found it people and places rather that's one of the principles they lived by the second was I was in Glasgow and this brings me back to the accent and I was in Glasgow one time with my ex-wife I remember we were having uh, a meal in a restaurant and the waiter came and said something. I still don't know what he said, but I ordered something <laughs> and it was okay. But I couldn't understand a thing. <laughs> you know, Soul sauce? An accent. <laughs> yeah, maybe something like that. And then uh, my father actually went to uh, for paper technology, as you're very familiar with paper and packaging, to Robert Gordon in uh, Aberdeen. So we had a lot of connect there and some of his friends became my friends. And I was studying in England later, and then I visited a lot, uh, especially Aberdeen and Edinburgh and southern parts. Uh, spent a lot of time there, but it's great memories of Scotland for sure. Yeah, no, it's a wilderness, some of it, um, as well as some great cities. But uh, I think a lot of people in the UK don't realize that they've got this wilderness on their doorstep and nearly 800 islands off that west coast. Similar story for me, I, I actually did a stint in the army um, before I went in my business career. And um, we did an exercise similar to yours. And that's why I'm impressed you lived off the land north of Inverness for two weeks. I'm not sure what you were eating. But um, we, we did the same for, for less than a week uh, on an island called Ulva off the west coast. And um, it was a pretty wild but amazing experience. And yeah, exactly the same. Leave, leave the land in the same or better shape than you found it. Yeah, it was it was mostly mussels and snails. <laughs> Whatever okay. we could put in that seawater to boil in the end. <laughs> because it was all, uh, it was really amazing because even at that time, of course, we had no GPS. I'm talking early, oh, even, eight, well, very, very early 90s, 91. I remember they would wake us up at 11, would get start getting dark, this was July, and uh, they would wake us up at 1.30 to climb a mountain at 1.30 a.m. Mm -hmm. Because from the other hill, they would provide us the Morse code for the grid reference for, for where our breakfast would be the next day. <laughs> so, you know, that was the only I way we it. could find food apart from mussels and snails and boiling it in seawater. So it was amazing. Uh, but I want to go wow. to your geography roots more. What uh, attracted you to geography? And uh, and I, I'm sure that impacted your choices as well. Yeah, I think uh, geography is an interesting subject because uh, I think in some areas it's uh, it's much maligned as being very general. But I think that, that, that general aspect about geography, it sort of connects so many things. You have to sort of start with the fundamentals of geology. 
and understand how our planet's constructed and then build off that is sort of how life has formed and the ecosystem has has the amazing ecosystem that has been created around that so i think what a geographer does is sort of look at the problem and the solution you can say hey don't build that dam um, because there's obviously having a negative environmental impact, but hey, don't build that dam because in 20 years the river's going to silt up and X and Y could happen to your population, and these could be the social and economic impacts of that. It's sort of it's sort of a way I guess a geographer is trained to think, and um, yeah, I just always uh, loved the environment, but all as I said at the beginning, all the aspects of the environment, both the natural and and the built environment. And it's how all those factors interconnect. And I guess that brings us right to the present time of some of the big existential threats that we as a human race are facing of how we actually coexist, or nine billion of us, or we're getting that way now, can coexist on this planet that we're rapidly warming up and um, and how all those factors are interconnected and the challenges we face. And yeah, at a very sort of focused and, and micro level in that challenge, we're going to talk, be talking about plastics and uh, and the specific how we use those and the impact of those have on our on our broader environment and why the army what attracted you to that um similar to you you seem to like getting up at uh, 1 30 in the morning and yomping up hills <laughs> albeit you didn't sound like you had much choice in it i was a volunteer um but yeah no, i just love that sort of challenge if there's a mountain i'm going to go and climb it and i you know taking on and yeah, there's a there's a straightforward analogy there to what i'm doing now is you know doing something brand new particularly in the material is a massive challenge to bring a new technology to market and that's the same in in my life when i'm not at work is taking on physical challenges like that so that was one aspect of it two is i think um you know, I was lucky enough to join the British Army. Yeah, I think you, you get trained half of your life. So you'll spend your life training, you learn some amazing skills, you get given incredible opportunities at a very young age. And um, you, 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 put, you get out what you put in, basically. So you can have a fantastic time and you can also have a short career or a long career. So I chose a short one, did a five year stint but had some amazing experiences in those five years, which I don't think uh, I would have, or I know I wouldn't have got if, I'd, if I hadn't done it. You are a true Scot, then, because when we go around, yeah, and I don't know how much you, I'm sure you're a little familiar at least with the history of India. And of course, uh, I spent a lot of time in the, on the Indian mountains, climbing and hiking and rambling, whatever you may call it. and. Uh, the beautiful thing about the Indian Himalayas is that you'll always find this amazing structure that was built by a Scotsman at some point. And it was mostly Scots. It wasn't the yeah. Brits. It was mostly Scotsmen who were going on their horse. And there's some, some story around mm -hmm. it, you know, because this was some, you know, it was a remote little village. And you'll find this beautiful bungalow overlooking the white capped mountains and, uh, and and it's just so beautifully made. And the story would be that there was a lone Scotsman who came here like the Suvista and created something like that. So you clearly have that Scot in you then. I was certainly the wanderlust. And I know our histories are very interconnected because my dad was actually born in India for exactly that reason. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, Did you ever visit? Uh, no, and sadly, I mean, he, he sadly died this year. But um, we always talked about going back, but we never made it. So well, one day, one day I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Um, 
but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get we'll get around to that. But no, he he instilled in me sort of that desire for travel and and seeing the world. And I think yeah, a lot of the history of Britain and and the fact that we did uh, shall we say go to a lot of places and and create this sort of uh, enormous um, well, empire at the time was there was the Scots that did the work. That's for sure. Um, and and uh, yeah, I think it's sure. in the DNA. Yeah, so you know now it's Mikasa to Casa. You can always come to India and we'll we'll find a way to make sure that you uh, find the roots of where your father was and mm. you know uh, stuff like that. So you have that offer from us online committed. <laughs> so you, you <laughs> I'll be taking you up on that. Of this now. <laughs> okay, so but the other thing I wanted to pick up on before we switch to the core subject of Aquapack uh, was your year in Africa. That sounded beautiful as well. You know, it was Save the Rhino International and traveling across Africa. How did that happen and how did that influence your life? You said you hadn't done any digging. You seem remarkably well informed. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, again, through various connections, but it was more, I mean, I love Africa. Let's, let's start there. Africa gets under your skin. If you've ever spent any time there, you know, I mean, proper time, you know, and I'm not maligning anything here, but I'm saying away from the beach and just a holiday, just with the people there, they're just very infectious. They make fun and they enjoy and they have smiles on their faces, regardless of all the challenges that get thrown at them. And they teach you a lot about life and about how lucky we are. You know, just things we absolutely take for granted, whether it be, you know, a, a tarmac road or, you know, turning a light switch on or going to the shop and, you know, being able to buy whatever food choice we want, um, let alone the climate and some of the challenges that throws up. So it just always got under my skin, Africa. So when I had the opportunity to um, travel down it by vehicle and, and actually, again, try and make a positive impact by procuring and then... Um, donating a vehicle for Save the Rhino International. It just uh, covered a lot of bases for me is, is when I left the army. It was just a great sort of project and adventure to do, but ending up actually being able to hand on something useful, which is what we did. And at the time, the rhino was a desperately endangered species, and sadly, it's only got worse. But you know, I'm pleased to say that at least one, one of those species is still clinging on in the wild, but it has been shockingly poached and that challenge continues. And yeah, as you, most of the people are well aware, it's very close to extinction in Africa because the value of its horn uh, drives a black market that makes it worth the while for people to pick up a Kalashnikov and go and shoot them. Because uh, if you've got nothing, uh, that's a very tempting offer when someone's offering you that sort of money. So it's totally understandable, sadly, why it does happen. but. If again, it's I think it's sort of akin to the environmental challenges that we have. If we as a human species can actually club together and collaborate around what to most of us seems an obvious cause, we can stop these things from from happening. Um, but sadly, that continues because of the market for the horn in certain parts of the world. Uh, but I played a very very small small part in in trying to in trying to assist that project. But that the save the rhino work continues, and those guys do a great job. Yeah, as it turns out, my sister-in-law was born and brought up in Kenya, uh, worked uh, 
don't know if it was the same NGO, but she definitely worked in with rhinos and elephants, and then the lion guardians was something she was instrumental in. Worked with vultures, and now works on something else. But you know, again, uh, super involved in conservatism, and uh, and uh, and basically they love Africa. My brother and my sister-in-law, they live there, and they absolutely. You're right. It's like they. I asked them to. Sh- think about shifting during COVID because they were both hospitalized. I said, we won't be able to get you out if something happens. It was just like, there is no way we are shifting out of Africa. And as it turns out, I was in Madagascar last week. So I do know a little bit of what you're talking about, but not as much. uh, There's a a place I want to go. That's an amazing place. I need to spend more time there. A friend of mine is based there for the next three years. So I'm definitely, I told him I'm coming back maybe next year and spending more time exploring. It's it's just such amazing diversity because like 90% of the habitat there is nowhere else in the world. So it's so cool to see some of the things that you never see. I mean, the the Galapagos gets exactly a lot of publicity, but I don't know why we don't talk about Madagascar more because for the same reasons. Yeah. Yeah. But I've not, I've been not, not oh. lucky enough to go yet, but it's on, on my bucket list, that's for sure. Perfect. <laughs> so, okay, let's segue. Let's segue to packaging because there's this huge line of uh, stuff that you've done, you know. The one that I have on my notes is Coveris, and I don't know how, how good the pronunciation is, Paragon, Mondi, Southport. And how did this happen? How did the move from saving the rhino, army saving the rhinos get into packaging because that's that's again a different uh, line altogether and then talk to us a little more about the, the things that you learned in these different companies because they are all different in some way or the other yeah um, the how it happened is uh, is more by chance and design is um, I, I, I got offered a job in a in a paper business um, as I came out of the army um, I met uh, well I had a good friend who worked um, in in a particular business and yeah I just got introduced to someone and and ended up working there um and so that was really formative I had I had made a choice I wanted to be in in something tangible you know I was quite wanted to get into manufacturing just because I thought there were good opportunities there um from a sort of growth and uh, management career opportunities but also it was nice to physically actually pre-producing something and having a having a product to work with so that was you know I found myself in the world of materials and paper and then that led into packaging and yeah they say once you get into that world you never get out and so far I'm I'm, I'm living proof although I've moved through the supply chain slightly which is to where we are now with Aquapack but yeah it was a um, it was a good introduction to what we take if you're an everyday consumer you don't really think about but suddenly you find yourself walking down supermarket aisles and taking a real interest in how everything's packaged rather than what's actually in the in the product. Um, so yeah, sadly I've done a lot of uh, a lot of snooping and, and holding my family up while I sort of turn stuff over and you know feel it and uh, look at what the recycling label was and mutter about greenwashing or green lighting, um, and then move on down. So yeah, it's uh, it's not. Um, it's not a career I would have planned, um, you know, right at the beginning of, you know, when I was in education, but it has led me to where I wanted to get to, if that made sense. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And on both aspects, you know, I totally echo uh, your thinking. I came into the industry literally kicking, screaming, because my father had started a company, he had lost interest in it, and it was going down. 
And I came back just to say, okay, I'll help my father maybe even wrap up the business. But, but as you know, once it takes you in, it's kind of difficult to sort of come out. And of course, at maybe 14 years of kicking and screaming, and I realized, huh, I could do a lot with this. And, you know, yeah. That's how the evolution started. But yes, I couldn't leave the industry. And the second, totally, my wife, again, like I'm literally, we get a gift and I'm more interested in the packaging. I'm like, okay, let's check the paper. <laughs> you know, I said, this is really cool. And, you know, they've really done a good job out of this. So it was, uh, it's very similar to you. I think all us packaging people wander the aisles looking at the packaging instead of the product inside it. <laughs> and my wife doesn't still understand it. You know, like I'm not, I'm not shopping for groceries. I'm looking at the packaging and what's happening there. You are. Um, I don't think my wife's quite as understanding. I think she's had enough of it. But uh, no, it's uh, it's not for everyone, but it, it's a fascinating topic as, as we're going to get into. And yeah, I didn't really answer the other half of your question earlier. I, I've been lucky. I've worked for some very big multinationals. I worked for Amcor. Just even when they were in paper, they've obviously now got into flexibles. But when they were really beginning to grow as a business, so I saw that perspective. Mondi the same when they first divested out. They were they were. A, you forget Mondi was a small subsidiary in the, in in the giant Anglo American corporation, and now they have a bigger market cap. Than, uh, I did not know that. Yeah, that's, that's news to me. And so they divested out of South Africa because they were a resource company, but they were all in wood, and the rest of the company was in mining. So they sensibly um, split it off in the late nineties um, and uh, no early two thousands. And um, yeah, so they've successfully grown. So when they landed in Europe and did their first acquisitions in Europe, I happened to be working one of those businesses. So that was a fascinating experience in seeing how those guys thought about the overall market and set about uh, homogenizing the various acquisitions they had bought and then growing the business. Uh, and then I moved to a smaller business, which was Paragon, but um, founded by a, a brilliant entrepreneur who, who set the business up. And... Um, I, I took over the business from him and then um, we, we sold that business to a private equity group. So then I had a, a whole a different set of experiences with them. And then we were then merged again with a whole a bunch of other packaging businesses to create Caveras. So I think that's sort of a microcosm of the story of packaging in many ways. It's a hugely fragmented industry. There are a lot of small players um, it's geographically fragmented and it's fragmented by product and so there's a lot of merger and acquisitions activity always um, and there's a, there's a lot happening because it's such a ubiquitous product you know, everybody needs packaging and it might only be 1 or 2% of the actual product price of what the consumer pays but that product can't move or get to where it needs to be or be used by a consumer if the packaging isn't right and so it's it's something that um, you know like it or hate it, and there's a lot of press about packaging, negative press about packaging. It's something that we all need if we want to carry on the lives and the convenience that we have now. Um, so it's you know no one thinks about it, but it's it's absolutely fundamental to to moving stuff around and being able to consume stuff. The Good Garbage Podcast has been brought to you by PACA. PACA has been creating solutions in the food packaging, carry, and service space. PACA utilizes sugarcane residue 
and upcycles it into amazing products. Their latest offering is a compostable, flexible packaging solution for the chocolate and confectionery industry. The products are available in the Indian subcontinent and in North America now. Paka is also building an end-to-end solutions for customers in the food service and delivery space. For any query, do email at connect at paka.com and Paka is P-A-K-K-A. Now, back to the show. To the main uh, meat and potatoes of this uh, conversation. So you are in this com- comfortable uh, job where you're leading companies and you decide to pivot and you get into a startup mode. How did that come about? How did Aquapack actually emerge and what was the thinking and why did you take this getting out of comfort zone? Like knowing very little about your personality, I can kind of deduce why because of the climbing mountains. But, <laughs> but you know, you tell me, how did that happen? Yeah, no, I'm glad you started there because that sort of sums it up. If I see a challenge, whether it became a, a, a physical one or a, or a business one or you know, any, any other one you want to think of, it always fascinates me and interests me. And some things just get under your skin where you see, you know, I'm not gonna, just going to talk about that or watch it. I actually want to get involved in it. And, uh, you know, Aquapack was a slow burn for me because I first saw the product while I was running Caveras, um in the UK, the technical director, he had an open brief to go and bring new materials in. And he just walked in one day, pushed, put this, yeah, brought in what looked like a standard piece of flexible packaging film, put it in a glass of hot water, and it dissolved in front of your eyes. And then he pulled out another piece. He said, go and try and put your finger through it. And I couldn't get my thumb through it. He said, good, isn't it? And I said, yeah, this is really interesting. He then told me the functionality of that material, that it was a, a great gas barrier for all gas. It was an oxygen barrier, uh, sorry, a grease barrier, a fat barrier, and a petro barrier as well. And it was four times stronger than HDPE. And I went, okay, now I'm really interested. And it had great clarity. Um, and that's where I first saw the product, you know, fully dissolvable hydrophilic polymer that can you know, do the same job as a hydrophobic standard polymer, um, but with great functional characteristics beyond what a lot of polymers have. And as a packaging guy, a material guy, you start thinking of all the possibilities of how you could use that material, either on its own or in combination with other products to design stuff which is useful and functional in the everyday world, but has none of the jeopardy that you get with um, other other polymers at the end of its life. And we then we now sort of need to talk about how packaging is made and how it's evolved to how it's made. But to answer your question, I'm sure we'll get onto that, but answer your question directly, that's what piqued my interest about Aquapack. Now, I then very quickly found out that the business was still at its early stages. This was very much a lab material and we had, still had to go through all that fundamental you know, R&D work to, to, in order to um, get the product actually running consistently and stably at scale and work through that. So there were a huge number of challenges ahead, but it got my interest enough where I showed a you know, direct interest in the company, met the chairman, and the chairman said, hey, why don't you come and join us? And um, you know, I don't usually need two invitations to take on a challenge like that because uh, that's the way I'm wired and you know the other thing that was very much a subtext and it's not just me I think I think it's everyone that works in Aquapack we all have a desire to albeit you know 
we don't want to overcook this, but I think everyone wants to do something positive. Everyone wants to make an impact or to leave the world, if they can, in a, in a better place than they found it or have a way of at least contributing to that. And I think all of us are here because we absolutely firmly believe in what we're doing and we just want to make things better. They're never going to be perfect. I think everyone striving for perfection is 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 always going to be disappointed. But if you can do stuff that's better than what you did yesterday or you can produce materials which are better than the stuff we've made before, just getting started and trying stuff, it makes a positive impact. And I think that's what drives us all on. So I didn't need uh, two invitations to give it a go. And uh, five years on, I'm still here. Super. So how long was it from the time you saw the material to you chucking your comfort oh, job and three, moving three to... years. Well, that, it, it two, does a while. Two or three it years. It a while to uh, wrap up what you were doing. Yeah, I know. I watched it for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I watched it for a while. Whether this was real or not. And, and the, but this is also the challenge for everybody, right? Because it's not everyone's in a position where they can do that or want to take that risk because we've all got yeah houses to heat, lives to live, children to look after, not all of us, but you know, I was in that position, the lucky position where I did. Um, so it's not just you you're making that calculation for and, and maybe, you know, it was a risky move, I mean, in terms of a career, but it, you know, you only get one, you know, I don't want it to come out with too many cliches, but you only get one shot at your career or one shot at doing stuff. And I wanted to give it a go, you know, really so, yeah, I wanted to try and do something that was, you know, ultimately positive and impactful. And of course you want to make a successful business out of it at the same time. And, and Aquapack has all of that potential. Well, the good thing is with your solid resume, you always have somebody who would be wanting to have you back in a regular packaging industry. But just for my, just to just to understand it, uh, your uh, career a little more, uh, I presume you must have sold all kinds of packaging in this time. You know, in time because yeah. I know what like Mondi can make craft, and you know there are others that may make flexible packaging. So I guess it was every like paper, plastics, and everything in between. And how did that uh, was it, was that something was was it something on your conscience as well as you were making this shift, or uh, did you think that's done? But I have to also evolve further. No, it was, uh, it was on absolutely on my conscience because when I first saw this material we produced at Aquapack, which was called Hydropole, yeah, there was the, this dissolvable film which is highly functional immediately my mind raced to all the different iterations and all the different formats you could use that in because I had had that experience exactly that you know and ultimately packaging is a combination of different materials that give you the functionality you need in order to get our products that we package safely and conveniently to the consumer with lightweight using the least amount of energy but maintaining the product integrity communicating all the information you need to communicate so that the consumer is 100% happy with what they're receiving and we've we have done and I count myself in this as a as a packaging industry a fantastic job over 60 or 70 years of evolving these materials to make fantastic lightweight packaging which is hugely convenient and functional so it's not something you're going to unwind overnight or you even want to unwind overnight but we've got to find solutions to do that so it's not just a linear economy and using it all the time so i when i first saw that material 
and being a packaging guy, you think, wow, there's so many possibilities here. And then you start getting excited and then you get pragmatic about all the steps you need to do to actually get that to work and bring a new material to market with all the inherent challenges because no one had done it before. But you still get excited and think, we can do this. And we have done it. And we will continue to evolve it and take it even further than we've already done. And it will have a, a positive impact on the way we use materials. Not because it's trying to replace or supersede anything. It's not necessarily better than anything. But in combination and collaboration with other things, it enables you to do stuff you can't do without it. So it's that enabling technology which just gives packaging designers another tool in their toolbox that they can just use and deploy to design highly functional products that can be either recycled, organically um, you know, put into the organic waste stream, um, or, or in worst case scenario, if it needed to in the in natural environment, it would fully biodegrade and leave no trace. So uh, that that's that's why um, that's why I'm at Aquapack. Yeah, and as you call yourself a polymer nerd, so, so I'm sure the Aquapack well. guys were very happy to have a, such a wide spectrum of experience with different packaging. And on top of that, a polymer nerd amongst them, I'm sure. Well, I, I tell you what, if I'm a polymer nerd, then I'm, I'm surrounded by utter geniuses because I'm very lucky to work with some extremely clever people. Uh, well, I did meet your CTO and, and he was scientists. clever. <laughs> yeah, uh, who really, really are, I wouldn't call them nerds, but they really know what's, uh, what's going on. And they know, obviously, either chemistry of our own product, but also the chemistry of how that combines with everyone else's product and the impact that has both on their affinities so you can process them together but also the functionality so you're creating stuff that the world wants and then how they break down and i think that's the fundamentals you know back to the point of how did packaging evolve it evolved for a reason you know we can't ship everything around in metal and glasses which is where it used to be and you know, um, not in all parts of the world, but in, in several parts of the world, we you know we have evolved from a very localized um, seasonal st structure of you just eat you know what you can buy on the local market into this uh, fast-moving consumer goods world, and that is a you know, an enormous supply chain as we all well know. So you have to you have to have packaging, and but we have moved from glass and metal. Um, which are obviously easily identifiable, easily sortable, easily separable, and therefore easily recyclable into a whole range of complex materials, particularly polymers, which aren't easily separable or easily recyclable. But we've created fantastic lightweight packaging, which does a fantastic job for us as consumers. And we're not going to be able to fully rewind that clock. And I don't think we want to because, you know, just look at the energy use that we'd have, we would need if we didn't have all that lightweight stuff. Now, there is a fundamental question about the lifestyle we lead for sure. And there are certain items which are completely overpackaged. Um, Easter eggs is a good example, which you could just eliminate. But those are, you know, the, those low hanging fruit aren't, aren't going to change the system. Uh, they're going to make some impact, but a relatively minor impact. And we're not going to go back to, I believe, you know, changing everyone's lifestyles because we're wedded to that lifestyle of convenience. So how do you make packaging work within the current supply chain? And that's where, you know, we at Aquapack fundamentally believe you need new materials to help help unlock those challenges. And that takes me really well because I've been... Uh wanting to learn more myself and i'm sure many of the listeners would know 
want to know more about PBOH, PBA, and the base substance that you guys use, where does it come from and why PBOH and PBA? So take us through the technicalities of uh, the, the base material. Okay, so um, it's, uh, it's still derived from oil. I think that's the first thing to say. Um, and it's a basically a, a petro-based material that behaves like a biopolymer. The thing that makes that possible is a hydrophilic material. So it breaks down in the presence of water. But it starts through that cracking process. You then create um, vinyl acetate. And from vinyl acetate, you can, it's, as a third step, you can, you can create polyvinyl polyvinyl acid polyvinyl alcohol and that's what pvoh is now we are uh, actually developing our own and we we've got the ip registered the ip on this now but our own bio-based form of polyvinyl alcohol won't be exactly the chemistry won't be an exact match but it'll be very close um, from a food waste source so ultimately and it goes back to getting what i was saying about getting started and also something better than it was yesterday keep improving our long-term vision and we're still talking you know three or four years down the track is we'll have a bio-based form of polyvinyl alcohol right now it is still it's still oil based but even as an oil-based material it it won't cause you any environmental jeopardy and it can really help in creating the circular economy because of its inherent characteristics at end of life in that it, it dissolves. Oh, that's its key attribute. But it has this high functionality if you can process it. And that's really where Hydropole and these uh, brilliant chemists that I work with have come in is we've been able to create and formulate from a base raw material, as you say, PVA, PVOH, which exists is probably around 8 million tons being produced annually. Most people know it as the, uh, as, the, as the film around their dishwasher tablet or the detergent tablet they use in washing machines at home. That is a form of it. Now, it's still, that's a form of PVA or PVOH, which is combined with other materials so that it can be processed. Um, so it reduces its functionality because it's a copolymer. What we've been able to do is not have to copolymerize the PVOH. So if you like, it's pure PVOH. What you do is then keep very high hydrolysis. So above 92% uh, hydrolysis, it's Aquapax IP. So we have high hydrolysis PVOH, which gives you high functionality, but it also gives you all the environmental benefits that we have or end of life benefits that you have, that you have a fully dissolvable material because it's not a copolymer. It's There's nothing else in there. And um, you can yeah, you can there you, you can then use it um, for a whole range of end of life, but predominantly because it dissolves out, you can separate it very easily from other materials. But if you wanted to biodegrade it in an organic waste stream, it would fully biodegrade either in composting or anaerobic digesting, or even in the natural environment. That's amazing. So two things. Uh, one is, of course, are you then subject to the price fluctuation as it happens with plasticizers and oil? Uh, and the second is a more specific question on what do you mean by high high hydrolysis and, and how does that impact the functionality? Well, the yes, we are um, subject to commodity prices because it's ultimately wedded back to that feedstock. And it's also... 
there is, as I, as I mentioned, a three-step production process. So it's a relatively high-cost process in order to end up with polyvinyl alcohol. And then that is traded and you can, and you can track that, you know, the indexation on that on Platts or Isis, uh, and, and that's what we do. Um, because of that, you know, it is a more a more expensive um, a more expensive polymer. So, you know, that's that's part of the challenge. However, going forward, you know, the bio the bio version of that that um, that I mentioned, we're actually looking at, and we still got to complete the job. So we're working on this, but we'll do that through a two step process. And as I said, it will be made from a a readily available food waste source. So we need to we need to work through how the economics are going to work on that. But like all these things, you know, when you introduce a new material to market, you know, the price is going to be different. You, you're getting a whole different level of functionality. You're getting a whole different level of end of life capability, and um, you know the pricing is set based on what the material does, and that and that's where poly you know, polyvinyl or hydropole is. But polyvinyl alcohol is, but yeah, you can trace the you can trace the raw material before we get hold of it, and then and then do what we do. And just just a little bit more uh, about the IP. The hydrolysis is only part of the equation. What we do is we formulate it, and we yeah we are right. We have some plasticizers, but we formulate different blends of polyvinyl alcohol. So different producers have their own blends, and there are three we have four or five key producers in the world. No two blends would be exactly the same, but it comes in its raw flake form. So we take, we blend those together. We add some plasticizers to those, but we then put it through a reactive compounding process. So our IP is half based on the actual chemistry and half based on the actual process by which we manufacture it because there's a reaction taking place in the, in the compounding vessel. And controlling that along with the actual formulation is what produces hydropole. So the IP is written on both both aspects. We don't need to go into too much more detail on the IP. <laughs> no, of course. <laughs> but but just from a layman's perspective, if we look at uh, base level, um, the physical manifestation of hydropole uh, versus if one was to buy a PVOH direct from an oil company, uh, what would the physical man? How would the physical manifestation differ in terms of functionality? Okay, okay that's that's a relatively easy one. Um, in terms of, we don't need to go into too much depth. So the, you buy it in flake form, so it literally looks like a snowflake, if you like. That's obviously it doesn't melt in your fingers like a snowflake, but it, it you know it looks and feels like that. And when we've by the time we've actually blended it, and then you add the um, you then put it through the reactive compounding process with the plasticizer that I was mentioning. You then get a molten form of it, and then as a molten form of that comes through the screw and barrel, we then uh, pelletize it. So that's the key. That's the key differentiator here with standard polyvinyl alcohol, is that is a flake form. Now, thermo processing. So we now go into the packaging end of all the different thermoprocessing routes you've got, whether it be blown film, extrusion coating, injection molding, blow molding, all of those require at the beginning of that process a pellet that you can heat and melt under pressure before, so you can thermally process it. So the ubiquitous way that you introduce polymers into 
the packaging industry or into the different thermoprocessors is as a resin pellet. And that's what we produce. And that's the key difference to answer your question between us and, and, and polyvinyl alcohol flake you can buy on the market. So that's what we do here at our factory in Birmingham in the UK, is we take the raw flake, we put it through, we, we do our chemistry, and then we put it through a reactive compounding process and we end up with a resin pellet that can be used in a thermo pro, thermo packaging process. Thermo process. And if you look at the final product, say you create a blow film, if you were to create a blow film, presumably if you can create a blow film from a regular PVOH versus hydropol, would there be a difference in the properties as well? Or it's just not possible to create a blow film from a flake? Uh, you couldn't, you need to, you need to do a copolymer. And there were, there are, so copolymer, you're blending it with other polymers in order to make it thermally processable and there are on the market and they're you know they're regularly produced and you see things like laundry bags being produced out of them but you know which then you put your dirty washing in you throw in the washing machine and the bag disappears and you're just left with your washing that's great but it's still a copolymer and what we do is do it without the other copolymer in there um, and that also enables us to have a higher level of functionality because the copolymer reduces the functionality out of necessity because you're adding that other polymer so you've got that blend of the two polymers um, functionality whereas the pure PVOH version we have um, gives you that higher functionality but if you look at two pieces of plastic back to the supermarket analogy we're talking about you know to the, to the average person understandably walking around they just look like two bits of plastic you wouldn't know what the polymer is or the different blends of polymers. So it's really how it behaves from a functional point of view when you do that barrier test or you put it on that shelf life trial uh, or you try and break it down at the end of life that makes a difference. And, and that then sort of brings us into you know, the complexity of why polymers are so hard to recycle and why so much packaging we have such a problem with polymers is because most are... Um, a blend of different polymers you know either they're constructed in different layers or or one's coated on top of the other or they are actually physically blended like that as a copolymer as an alternative to hydropol so one of the challenges you and i both know about packaging is uh, the challenge is so large and you need scale uh, and when I'm listening to you, I'm feeling that that's possible in this case. You know, you, you mm -hmm. said, you know, there's millions of tons produced of uh, PBOH, mm -hmm. if I heard you right. So do you think that uh, something like maybe Hydropol or Aquapacks, new, uh, you know, new products that will eventually evolve, uh, do you think it could be done at a significant scale that it can make a dent in that huge pile that we've created? Absolutely. And, you know, we're not the silver bullet. We're not saying, hey, stop everything. Let's all just do hydropole. We're just one of uh, several new entrants um, and new materials that can be part of the solution. I guess my key message is, you know, we need new materials. We can't solve the problem with what we've always used because otherwise we wouldn't have a challenge. So it is a common, but equally, those are not bad. They just need to be used in combinations with the right new materials in order to design them again. You can't lose the functionality. None of us are going to move away from products that aren't convenient or aren't safe or don't arrive on our doorstep the way we want them. So we've got to start there. You've got to have the functionality, but you've now got to design in, which is only in the last 10 or 15 years we've even been thinking about this, how you actually 
separate and sort and recover those materials at the end of life so you don't have to chuck them away or waste them. Now, of course, there's a finite amount of times that you can recycle a polymer, but it's better to get three or four lives out of it than one life out of it. And at the end of that, there is some form of energy recovery you can still get now because clearly a lot of, of co-polymers or, or, or coex or different combinations of polymers are being incinerated, um, which is probably better as an energy recovery than putting it straight into landfill where there's a whole lot of other inherent products. But let, let's not go down that debate. Let's just focus on the, how do we keep it, those materials in the economy, otherwise known as a circular economy even if it's for two, three, four, five, or six iterations, let's let's focus on that. And that really is about using all the tools in your toolbox that you can to design products that are functionally correct to meet the needs of the consumer or your customer, but enable you to break down and separate. And that can absolutely be done at scale. But to your point, let's just give it a little bit of context. There's 400 million tons of polymer being produced annually globally. I mean try and get your head around that that's such an enormous figure so we could all go away that's far too big we can't cope where do we stick but it is just back to that just get started you know biopolymers right now are two percent of that we've got started great things like pla and pha for certain applications are fantastic you've got products there that you can compost Yes, we need more composting facilities you can actually, a consumer can actually access and put it in, and most can't at the moment, so that's problematic, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing it or trying to do it. And that's a good that's a good way to think about it because then we can start doing other stuff with a similar can-do mindset. And, and consumers, I think, and I'm a consumer too, we're all consumers, are looking for that and thinking, you know, it's nothing more frustrating when you get a product, you look on the label and it says, don't recycle or recycling currently not available. You know, what does that mean? You know, we all want a solution because we're all aware that we've used something for a very short period of time and now it could potentially be hanging around the environment for four, five, six, seven hundred years and just putting that straight in a plastic bin liner and put it, watching it go into landfill doesn't make anyone feel good. So how can we actually do something with that, which at least enables that product to be um, sorted, separated and, and recovered? And that comes back fundamentally to packaging design, which comes back to your question around scalability. We've built a factory with you know, 40,000 tons of capacity here in Birmingham, which in, in 400 million tons is a drop in the ocean. But you combine, on, combine that with other materials it starts to have an impact in one or two different formats, three or four different f applications. We can we can build, you know, we can scale to any any size you want to because the raw materials I've said, there's eight to ten million tons. You can make more of that. There's probably only a million tons of that actually available. Um, you know, that isn't being used for other sources because PVA is being used for things like paper making it's been used in, in your car windscreens and pvb and stuff like that there's a lot of industry but you could scale that up when demand starts and we can scale up with it our compounding capability we just buy more compounders and we can scale with that and we can grow and and, and to be taken credibly in this business because the numbers are so enormous you need to have actual scale you can't just be a good idea in a lab because then you're just a good idea in the lab. You need to physically prove that you can make this stuff at scale, you can supply it at scale, 
and your customers can make it at scale. And that's where we are now. And that's been a long journey. And it's a journey will continue as we evolve, you know, every iteration, every 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 new um, version of our material will just get better or extend into new thermoprocessing routes or new markets. Um, but we're not the only one. There's several other people doing that, but it is the combination of materials that enable you to design products that are better. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're just trying to do something that's better than it was yesterday, and we'll get to perfection, and eventually we'll, we'll, we'll tackle the mountain, which is what you started your question was about seven minutes ago, which was, uh, you know, it's so big. Can, can we actually rise to the challenge? Yeah, we of course, but bit by bit. And 40,000 is a decent scale. It's not it's not small by any standard, yeah. especially yeah. considering the biomaterials economy. And, you know, we get to hear of lots of seaweed. But then when I talk about scale, it's like 3,000 tons and 5,000 tons. And you're right. It's not going to be just the 40,000 tons. It's the combination of products that is going to come out of that, which is going to be also the ultimate uh, weight is going to be higher. Uh, but just for my understanding, for a consumer, from a consumer's perspective, uh, does it look exactly like plastic or do you make a difference in that so that the consumer, apart from reading the label, can make a choice that this is not plastic? How do you how do you work that out? Wow, that's a, that's a really good question because, um, well, I think first there's a sort of fundamental question within that is, is that the consumer's job to identify and work out what to do with the product? Personally, I don't think it is. I think it's our job. That's you know, that's all our expertise is. Yeah, that's the service we're meant to be providing as an industry to give the consumer something that they get their product, they can use it, and they can really easily recycle it. And I think if you're going to get a maximum impact, you want to make that as simple and accessible as possible. Just put it in one bin because the technology exists to do the rest. We don't need to go and educate everybody in every country in every language to say, right, you need this color bin and that color bin and you peel this up. We just need we just need to use the technology that's out there. And there's some fantastic technology that the recyclers have at their disposal and in some cases are already using. But what is missing is the economic drive drivers for them to want to continue investing in that because we're not placing enough value on the actual recycled material. And the fact that virgin material costs less than recycled material in some cases is not going to incentivize them to to invest in it. So my view is we need to find a way of making the economic stack up so you can you can encourage more recycling and that the, the, there's a pull from the industry to actually not just be waste management in moving waste around so you put it a hole in the ground or you put it into energy recovery and incinerator you actually want that material back and you can then sell that material back into an industry so it is repurposed and 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 reused and i i think consumers obviously got a huge part to play in that and certainly their buying power i think will incentivize companies to do more of that and and i don't and collectively i don't i think investors and consumers can really make that happen um but we or the industry needs to invest in in greater capability to do that rather than relying on the consumer to make that choice and you're right as technology segregation technology evolves and hopefully they should be able to differentiate between the products and and then hopefully there would be enough robots to do the segregation and uh, you don't need humans to do that. Um, what about, Mark, what about the cost? If I was to compare a fundamental basic plasticizer, polyethylene film kind of an idea, flakes, 
versus Hydropol. Uh, would you guys be able to what what would be the spectrum? How how different would one be from the other? Well, we're not the cheapest and we're not the most expensive. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a very broad answer. So, yeah, we, we you know compared to polyethylene, which is the, you know, the most used, the most ubiquitous, the most understood. Yeah, you know, people get bags, just a straightforward shopping bag made out of poly polyethylene. So everyone understands what that is. You know, we're we're four to five times more expensive on a ton basis than that. But polyethylene has a very limited functionality. So when you start looking at materials or polymers that have um, you know, high functionality, so let's take EVOH, very similar in chemistry to, to what we do, you know, that's, um, that's slightly more expensive than what, than what we do, but it's um, you know, or broadly around the same, but probably slightly more, but you know, the functionality is very close. So we have an excellent oxygen barrier, EVOH has an excellent oxygen barrier. The difference is ours is dissolvable, enabling materials to separate, and EVOH isn't. I mean, that's, but they, EVOH you can use in very high humidity conditions. Hydropole, you, can, you, you can't use in very high humidity conditions in certain structures. So there's no straight answer to that. And, and then there are polymers and specialty polymers that, that are way more expensive again. So there's a whole range, but really the factors that drive the cost on that are one, obviously availability and scale. And as you have more volume, obviously the pricing dynamics change, but really then it's the equation between um, the functionality of the polymer. So what are you getting from that polymer? As well as well as the volume, the availability of that polymer, which is, which are driving the price. Right in the beginning, when you were talking about your first experience with uh, with Hydropol and, and and the substance that you got, uh, uh, and that tempted you to join Aquapack, you spoke about the strength properties. Uh, let's talk more about that. How does that enable lightweighting for you? Can you can you? you know, reduce the overall cost of a product by using PVOH or hydropole at, uh, at a lower uh, weight. Does that, does that work? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it comes back to why is plastics in being or why is polymers being used? You know, we, you know, we started with metal and glass and all we've lightweight and lightweight and lightweight. But I think most consumers would be shocked to hear, to understand that everyday products they're taking off the shelf might be nine or 11 layers of polymer in something that they can see through with print on the outside they're going what you know how does that happen but of course it's evolved that way because you need a ceiling layer on the underneath you need a barrier layer in the middle you need something in there for strength and you need something in to print on at the top and then you might need something else in there for an oxygen barrier something else in there for moisture barrier and so it goes on um, and so we have really is complex very complex and back to the chemistry but we've evolved it in such a finite way because you ultimately end up with really good looking packaging which does a great job at, at uh, informing the consumer and you know and some of the printing on that some of those labels are basically mini legal documents in a very small space all of that has evolved again we've gone from Gravia to flexo printing and it's no different in the way we process the polymers so we're looking at even three micron of barrier film, even two micron of barrier film in the middle of that, which is giving your oxygen barrier. So constantly the industry is looking at light weighting and improving and, and, and driving efficiencies. But there's no reason why you can't redesign those nine layers into say five layers or even three layers if it does the same 
combination and reducing it from maybe a, a 50 micron thickness overall to a 30 micron thickness. So long as it functionally does the job, you can take weight out and you can reduce the amount of stuff you have to transport around from a weight point of view, but you can end up with the same functionality. And that's exactly the way that we would encourage you to think about Hydropole. I've got this new tool that I can process within a coex structure, just like I mentioned, down to two or three micron that gives me the oxygen barrier, but also gives me the strength. So maybe I don't need that polyamide. Maybe I don't need that nylon. Maybe I can replace that EVOH. It's not one thing, it's a combination of things, but it is what is the right combination because then you get into all the different aspects of whatever that application is, what supply chains it in, what 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 moist, uh, what humidities is going to be subjected to, what strength do you need, what oxygen barrier do you need. So you've got to take all those things into account, but there's lots, there's thousands of brilliant packaging designers out there that do that every day. And it's just saying to them, here's another tool, you know, Here's another way of achieving that. Go and try a different combination and further improve what you've already created. So you, like when I look at the Aquapack website and I'm talking to you, um, you focus a lot more on recycling versus compostability. Although when I speak mm -hmm. to you, I realize that it is compo inherently compostable. Is, mm -hmm. that a, is there a reason for that? Uh, I understand your idea around circularity. Uh, but in the end, if it was to be composted, it would be fine as well, right? And so why is that, that you guys have taken a positioning of recycling versus composting? So it's really about scalability, again. You, I think composting has its place, and ultimately I'd say any food packaging or anything that's going to be contaminated with food, we need some form of organic end of life for. And composting is a great one, but anaerobic digestion is probably even better one because you can get en energy recovery from that. Yeah, but there's very little of it out there. You know, I think there's some studies saying in the UK that you know two to three percent of the population might have access to home composting, and it's not a lot more that have access to industrial composting. So. When you get that, when you get your magazine in a composted bag, you know, I and my wife is a good example. I'm just picking her out because she'll go, look at this, this is great. I say, okay, what are you going to do with it? Because we can't access, you know, industrial composting where we live and we don't have a compost heap. It goes in that black polyethylene bag, doesn't it? And then it's going into landfill. And sadly, that's what happens in too many cases. So it's about thinking holistically all the way through the value chain from designing products that functionally work for you and doing the job to get the product to where it needs to be in the right condition. And then that it's going to break down in such a way or, or access the end of life which suits the material. And we focus on that because Hydropole, is a, 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 we focus on recycling primarily because Hydropole as a material that dissolves um, can disappear effectively in a hot wash which again all the recycling technology deliver with that and then your other layers can separate now we've done a lot of work to prove this out in paper recycling so you put a hydropole coated layer extrusion coated onto paper you've got a barrier layer you're basically functionalizing the paper to give it a barrier but as soon as that and we formulate it in such a way that as soon as it enters standard paper recycling in a paper mill and a pulp mill which is it the hydropole will dissolve out giving 100% fiber release, and we've tested this a lot. All your paper fiber is therefore released back into the recycled system, and the hydropole will pass in solution, so it doesn't disappear, it's in solution, into the into the, um, the effluent plant where it will biodegrade both aerobically and anaerobically. 
And that's what happens with our dishwasher tablets. We've been flushing them down our, our drains and our sinks for decades now. And, you know, and big brands globally have been selling us to us to do that. So we know it's inherently safe and we do supply, we apply the same logic into, into paper recycling. But the key is the separation from the paper, the ability for those paper fibers to then be recovered and recycled and the hydropole to pass safely into the effluent plant where it biodegrades. So that's why, because we want to keep the maximum amount of materials in the circular economy and skate and the access to that, the easiest access to that is is through standard recycling where there is the maximum amount of uh, actual capacity to handle it. And that's the main reason we would go down that route rather than composting. And also the fact that it's back to the economics of it. You want to keep, if you can, the materials in in the economy and hence the circular economy i'm not saying there's nothing wrong with composting composting absolutely has its place and as i said for you know for food waste products or you know organic some form of organic uh, uh, waste solution is is the right way and you know ad would be would be a great one you know again designing products which can cope with being with food waste and that could be hydropolymer on a paper, but it could equally be a PLA or it could be a PHA or one of those other biopolymers. That's very succinct. Thank you. And just just the last bit on the product. Uh, so there are so many applications, and I'm sure you're excited more about some and maybe not as much about the others, or maybe you're excited about them all. But uh, <laughs> come out with maybe three applications that you really think hydropol as well and Aquapack would like to focus more and more on those. Okay, so I mean, we've—I mean, I've given you a lot of sort of generic stuff, but you know, if you if you then take that through to an actual product, I'll start with paper because I've just been talking about it. Coding hydropole onto paper to functionalize the paper means you can do something with the paper that you couldn't do without the hydropole. Now. It's not, you know, a lot of um, polymers are already coated onto papers, you know, polypropylene, polyethylene, um, in order to give them, in order to give them functionality, and of course they're metallized as well. Um, so you see that inherently, for instance, in in a lot of snack products or um, you know crisp packets, that type of thing. So. Um, we're looking at how can you how could you use hydropolymer combination with that paper to functionalize it to to fight in such a way that the end of life of those product whatever that product is that currently is hard to be recycled or can't be recycled you can actually make it recyclable again through separation sorting so we're working with a particular brand and um, the manufacturer the packaging manufacturer all in partnership to to create a crisp packet which will be a paper, you know, a world first, as in it will be a paper crisp packet, which the message to consumer is not this can't be recycled, it'll be put it in your paper waste. That's it, simple, because it will be recycled like paper because the hydropole is going to dissolve off. So that's that's one product we're super excited about in the paper area, but there's a whole load of other stuff you can do with paper with the same principle, but that's just one example to answer your question directly. In the polymer space, it is about um, co you know, producing polymers in a coax format, running hydropole, much as I was giving the example earlier around using it as an oxygen barrier in there, but enabling those that product to the end of its life to be flaked, put through a hot wash, hydropole dissolve out, 
and then those other materials can be recovered where they can't be recovered now. Now, of course, that's um, partly theoretical, but the equipment exists to do that, and you can you can do all that. So again, it's about creating products of better that are better for the future than they've been in the past. But what we do give is the same for the right applications. We give you know the same or even better oxygen barrier. So it's the same functionality. So using hydropole and a coex structure for a filmic structure would be a second one, and that can be done for any type of products that needs oxygen barrier. And then the third one, which we're also very excited about, and uh, we're quite well along with, uh, again, a number of brands, but also um, some manufacturing partners, is as a fiber and non-woven to create a dissolvable wet wipe. So a wet wipe, basically, that doesn't have environmental jeopardy, but also can't cause some of the um, uh, infrastructural challenges that you have down sewers right now with things like Fatberg because you know there's all there's already a flushability standard in terms of making sure a wet wipe breaks up and you know wet wipe you know, there's a lot of talk about banning wet wipes but I'm sure um, you know that's imposing uh, a quite a draconian way of imposing a lifestyle change on a whole load of people out there who rely on wet wipes and I don't think that's realistic to do that so again it's the same let's actually just take on the challenge and design something which doesn't cause the end of life problem but gives you the same functionality in life so we've partnered up with a lotion company and a manufacturer to do that and create a dissolvable wet wipe and yeah we've still got to we're still going to go through all the testing on that but again we're, we're really excited that you know that is a possibility we've got our sights on that we can go and create that and i hopefully those three give you examples of specifically but also very broadly how you can design hydropole into different products using existing materials to help create the same level of functionality, but better end-of-life solutions. Well, that's definitely a wide spectrum <laughs> and quite diverse uh, in terms of usage and definitely gives us uh, very interesting ideas on the usage. And Can, can I sorry. just say that? Please, please, please do. Sorry, sorry just, just on your wide spectrum. Yeah, the, the thing for us is, and this is sometimes where we, you know, it, it can be a little confusing. It's just to be clear on that point. We're a polymer producer, so we produce the raw material. We work in partnership with the guys that then take that raw material resin pellet and thermally process it to make those the products that I've just described. So the key there is the base technology of Hydropole as a resin pellet can be thermally processed down different routes. And three example I gave you was one extrusion coating. So you're putting it through a flat die and it's coating onto the paper. Two was in a coax. You're using it in a blown film bubble as a, within the structure of a coax as a barrier layer in the middle. And three was as, as a fiber. And then you can take fiber combinations and make a wet wipe. But actually in this case, we'll do it through a melt blown process. So we'll go straight from a pellet into a melt blown wet wipe. So just, just to make the comment and apologies for butting in that it, it is the pellet technology, the raw technology, which is ours, but we then do work very collaboratively with the thermo processors who are our partners and our customers to create the end product. We don't do that. It's their talent that does that. No, I'm glad that you butted in and clarified that because I understood it, but I'm sure uh, you know there may be people who are listening to this and may not uh, comprehend the, the, the base product and how it is uh, altered in different uh, usages. And uh, what about the acceptability? How has that been for you uh, as Aquapack? Uh, have the customers been receptive? 
has that been a challenge? Uh, where are you on that? Yeah, I think it's always a challenge. Anything new is always a challenge because, you know, it's, uh, it's not everybody that wants to be the pioneer to be the first to go out there and say, hey, I'm going to give this a go. But the pioneers absolutely exist. There are innovators out there going to try stuff. You also need to try in a safe way. You don't move your whole brand across to your product. You you do it on a on a, on a limited run or in a, in, in a specific application for a specific product for a specific period of time, you, and you give it a try. And that's exactly where exactly where we are. I think an overall comment is everything takes longer than you want it to or you think it's going to take because there are so many iterations and there's so many things that are outside of our control or even our customers control um you know which could be anything from logistics to supply chain issues to or just getting line time or trial time or test take time and a lot of you know as a new as a new kid on the block or new material on the block you know the tests and standards that are out there weren't designed for hydropole because no one knew about hydropole so in order for people to understand what we've got just like you said tell me how it works in a moisture vapor environment of this or oxygen of that or a migration test of this or a food contact of that you know and these are all absolutely standard questions in the industry that you need to conform to but we have to because that's a language everyone understands so they need to know how it applies so those tests weren't designed for a solid or hydrophilic polymer, they were designed for other polymers. So it, that is a challenge because if we were to write the test to prove certain things, we'd do it in a different way. However, we understand the industry has a common language, so we have to work with what's out there. So that always takes longer, but you have to not only get through them all, but you have to you know, explain and demonstrate everything at every step of the way in order to make, so that everyone feels they're on, you know, there's a level playing field of understanding before you can just start deploying the inherent benefits of the, of hydropole in terms of its functionality and its end of life. So, but that aside, you know, the vast majority of conversation we have are extremely positive. Everyone is hugely interested in the product. They, you just need to go through that route and those steps with everyone because everyone's got the same problem. You know, the same challenge. Yeah, it's yeah. Then there's a lot of pressure to solve that challenge. Whether you turn on the TV, and you and you hear the commentary around plastics and polymers and packaging and recycling and the linear economy and circular economy, you know, it's on everyone's lips. Investors are heavily interested in this. This is now a boardroom issue in most brands. So people are looking for solutions. But is the world now set on a particular way? No, people are in that phase of let's let's look at everything, let's understand it, let's see which way the the rules and regulations and standards are going to go, and the legislation is going to move, and and we'll just bide our time as uh, you know as long as we can in some cases before we have to make a move, and so that is always a challenge. So it's it's for us it's picking the pioneers, the guys you know in the industries and the products where probably have the biggest challenge. And helping them, you know, solve that challenge, and getting our product out there so that we can start to build it as a mainstream product that, that is accessible to everyone down the routes that I've already talked about. So this reminds me, my last chairman was a experienced and wise man, man like yourself, and uh, he would. And my wife calls me a delusional optimist. So, so he would warn me about you know this whole idea of things taking more time than what I imagined them to. And he would be right 10 times out of 10. 
and I always thought this time I'm going to prove him wrong <laughs> and then I'd go yeah, back yeah, to the yeah. board and say yes you're right <laughs> it didn't work so sounds like you wrong. and I are similar <laughs> yeah because yeah, uh, like, until, like until you've done the trial or the test you don't know yeah so yep, and not, not, not everything not, not every plan goes as planned as we well know <laughs> yeah and I'm going to take this towards a wrap with my three uh, last questions um, the first one I was looking at uh, your wide experience in different packaging domains and I was fascinated by that and I see that the industry needs more and more talent so what would be what would you say to students who might want to enter the packaging industry to get them into the industry? What would your spiel to them be? Yeah, well, I'll try and keep it short because they probably hear too much of me. But I'm really lucky in this job. And this is one of the things I love about Aquapack and being a new entrant and doing what we're doing is we get to work with some supremely talented people. I'm very proud of the people I work with here. You know, we've collected, we're in a city, Birmingham, in the middle of the UK, you know, very cosmopolitan city. So we've got people from all around the world. We, you know, we, we speak over 20 languages here and you know, people come here for different, as I explained, I think there's a core motivation and want to come here. But a lot of them have come out of universities nearby. We've been lucky enough to, to, to find them there because we work with so many universities. Right now, we're partnering with 10 UK universities on various different products. And we tend to work with them on their specialism. So for instance, we've got uh, four PhDs down at Portsmouth University studying the impact of microplastics in the marine environment. You know, we already did a big study on that um, with P Professor Theodore Henry up at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh. We work with uh, Loughborough University on the uh, adhesion and the adhesion of our product affinity to other products we work with uh, Aston University on uh, rheology we've just kicked off a big project with Birmingham University where they're looking at the whole pressability and we just got a yeah, big funding program with them and 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 so it goes on so uh, you know we get access to a lot of students so we're very lucky from that because we're sort of taking the fundamental R&D and I often liken Hydropole and what we've done to a big jigsaw and every every piece has to be found and some universities are just working on one piece for us and that piece yeah, helps fill in the whole puzzle so um, you know we've recently kicked off a, a thing with uh, a program with Newcastle University chemistry department where John and I will be partaking with them and I, you know, I'm lucky I get to talk to 70 students and I'll be telling them, hey, this is a great career. This is a great company. If any of you are interested, come and talk to us. But you know, just don't limit it to Aquapack. There's a whole lot of other people like us out there. Um, and so it's, it's, yeah, I am thankful that I, you, you get that opportunity. And because you're doing something different and it does require you to work up and down the value stream, does to require you to talk to a whole range of different people. We can be talking to government one minute, or we can be talking to a PhD student or an undergraduate the next minute. It gives you that opportunity to actually always be out there looking for talent, but also hopefully enthusing people that, you know, and I think, um, I don't know what generation we're in now that students are, but, you know, they think about careers differently, certainly than, than when I was their age, how we, you know, I thought about career. And I think they're more like-minded, shall I say, 
to look for businesses like us and they want to be part of something that hopefully is having a positive impact. So a lot of what we say about that resonates and then then you can look at the specific talent that they can bring. So we've, we've, we've been lucky and we've collected some absolutely fantastic talent here. But I think also our story and what we're trying to do really helps in that. And we do we do continually work at it. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. It's definitely a generation that is very purpose-led, and we find that as well. And I would definitely encourage you to mention your Good Garbage podcast the next time you are talking to students, because we realize that even our podcast, it's mostly that age group, the people who are looking at polymer sciences and packaging, and which is, which is a great, fascinating and encouraging think for us that uh, you know students are interested in this packaging domain and we get a lot of queries from again people who are studying in that material science kind of an idea and I'm going to take it towards a wrap with my last two questions that I mentioned before I'm, I'm keeping track of the last three so so, so um, it's amazing to see uh, the kind of scale you're operating in but if you look at a and, and you mentioned scale a few times and I did too but if you look at a five to 10 year timeline for Aquapack, what would your dream be? What is the amount of material that you think you could influence in that time? And, and don't hold back, you know, what, what, would, what, what would it be as a dream if there were no barriers? Yeah, with no barriers, you know, the way our product can be used, the way we're evolving it in terms of, you know, generations of the existing products, you know, continue to improve it from a processability and a functionality point of view, combinations with other materials. You know, in 10 years time, we, we, we could be producing hydropower, my dream would be in millions of tons because it, it can have that impact. It's certainly scalable to that level. And because we know we can make it at that level of scale, scale, and you've already commented on how broad, even though I took it back into, you know, it's the base technology that you then take down through all the different thermoprocessing routes. There's a there's hundreds of thousands of those different thermoprocessing machines out there that all can accept pellets. Now, of course, you have to learn how to run a new pellet, a new technology, and you need to go through all those steps, which we do through our technical transfer. But all of that is available capacity to use hydropole in and on in combinations with other materials so yeah our dream would be we can access that in millions of tons because we designed this business with scale in mind because to make a real impact you need to be at that scale in this industry and you are only going to work with these the big brands in the world if you can ultimately produce at that scale because that's the scale they produce at and that's exactly how we've we've thought about this business from the beginning yeah that's so encouraging and i totally agree with you we were working with a company for the small shampoo sachets the one time use and they needed 16000 tons annually so, so you know it's one there little sachet and that's the kind of planet we're talking about so if we don't do it at scale it's going to be it's not, it's the the challenge for the customer would always be you know how do you how do you switch so so it's it's that's a huge challenge and, that, and, and we thought about that really early on and that's why you know the, the key elements to us are available raw material and hopefully i've already explained that it is available and can be scaled if you need more of it which we would do at that level 
the fact that we're also looking at evolving our own source of, of raw material, be we'd license that technology out, and then our own converting capacity. I'm trying to, again, trying to keep that really simple with, with standard equipment that you can then process that, and that's where the scalability comes from because we did the same calculation and we're working with certain brands that are using even that one product in the billions of individual units a year and we're working with them on, on you know redesigning that product and and I think this is you know this is mind-boggling on one side but equally when you look at it from that point of view you realize that having a having an impact is 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 very accessible because when you're in certain formats those formats can be scaled very quickly of course you need to go through all the steps and gates in order to achieve that but they but they are being used at that level of scale so you've got to be you've got to be able to supply at that level of scale or else you're always just going to be uh, an interesting idea that will never be used ubiquitously, which our aim is to absolutely be used ubiquitously. Yeah, and I think uh, the idea of uh, you can't challenge everything. So I like uh, your thought process on not challenging the supply chain. You can use it in the same blow film machine as what a plasticizer would be used in and, and you're going to give base material which can be used in multi-applications and that both those things are really important, I think, for scale. And that takes me well to the... And you, you can, of course... Sorry, add, again, I'm just going to bust yeah, in. You're going to add something. So for the last add. time, I, you, you yeah, touched on a really good point because I've not made it because that scalability is exactly right. And again, it comes back to the scale of the challenge that we're all facing. How do you actually make, how do you actually, you know, make an impact and where do you get started? And that was our thinking. Use existing infrastructure. One, in terms of thermoprocessing equipment, two, raw material availability, and three, recycling uh, capability. And that's why the, you know, the first um, example I went to was paper, because paper recycling is, is the most readily available. And, and it's also very vast scale. And so that's where we see a great use of you know, functionalizing paper that can access that recycling. Sorry, I, in I interrupted you. No, no, you're good. Important points for, there is, there is, I think the interruption is important <laughs> because these are solid points. Um, kind okay. of you to say so. <laughs> okay, the, my last question, uh, and I'd love to hear the answer from you. Uh, what does good garbage mean to you? Yeah, well, I thought you might end there. Um, so I'm going to talk about in life and end of life, and that those are the words I use. So in life, good garbage is is a product which has done what it was created to achieve. So it's 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 actually made a product or a container, and we're talking packaging here, which has brought a product to a consumer safely, well communicated, in great shape. So it's done its job, but at end of life. It can also do its job, so you can actually access uh, a way of set of sorting it and separating it, so it can be reused and repurposed around the chain, and hence the circular economy. So effectively, good garbage is a product which is designed both to be used functionally in life, and so it can be recovered and recycled at the end of its life. That's beautiful. Thank you, Mark, for all your amazing insights. I think the industry needs more and more seasoned packaging professionals who are fellow delusional optimists, you know, who are ready to climb that mountain. Thank you for yeah. agreeing to be on the show. Thank you for the amazing work you and Aquapack are doing. I wish you all the very best, and I'm looking forward to you reaching a million tons very soon. Thank you. I'll come visit you when we do, then.
Thank you for listening to the Good Garbage podcast. Follow us on social media to never miss an episode. Links are in the description below. I'm your host Ved Krishna. See you next time.